Hi, everybody, and welcome to Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments, where we invite leaders from our investment team to offer their analysis of the investment landscape and the economic outlook. I'm Jay Diamond, Head of Thought Leadership for Guggenheim Investments, and I'll be hosting today. We are recording this episode on September 23rd, 2022. Now, before we dive in, there are two housekeeping items I'd like to mention. First, if any of our listeners have a question or a comment, just send them to us at macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com, and we'll try to answer them on an upcoming episode. And second, if you have a minute and you like what you're hearing on Macro Markets, please rate us five stars. Okay. Now, at the September FOMC meeting uh, this week, the Fed raised the federal funds rate by 75 basis points for the third consecutive meeting, bringing the target range to 3% to three and a quarter. Now, in so doing, the Fed is following through on Chair Powell's Jackson Hole speech, where he said that the Fed's, quote, responsibility to deliver price stability is unconditional, unquote. The markets seem to have gotten the message and the yield curve has shifted up accordingly. And central banks around the world are also on the same page as the Fed, raising rates not just to battle inflation, but to protect their currencies against the strength of the U.S. dollar. Now, what does all this mean for the economy and for investors? Well, helping us to make sense of all this is Brian Smedley, Chief Economist of Guggenheim Investments and the head of our Macroeconomic and Investment Research Group. Before joining Guggenheim in 2015, Brian was head of short rates research at B of A Merrill, and before that, a senior official at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Brian, thanks for coming back to speak with us today. Thanks, Jay. Always great to be with you. Now, we have a lot to talk about, Brian, uh, but let's start with the elephant in the room policy. What exactly did the Fed decide in its meeting this week, and was it what you expected? Yeah, the, so as you mentioned, the, the decision from uh, the FOMC meeting was to raise the target range by 75 basis points. So that takes us up to uh, a level of three to three and a quarter. Um, and I, that was what we expected. Yeah, we've been anticipating 75 basis points and, and, and Powell delivered on expectations. I think if you go back a, a month or two, there was probably expectations uh, inside the Fed and in the market that by the time of the September meeting, the, the FOMC would have downshifted to a 50 basis point pace. But as the data has come in and market developments uh, have evolved, you know, it's pretty clear um, coming into the September decision that the choice was between a 75 basis point hike or possibly 100. Um, and I think there are some compelling arguments for why 100 basis points might have been the right move. I mean, the key argument being that it's clear that more rate hikes are coming. And so what's the benefit of sort of dragging this on longer uh, and uh, prolonging the uncertainty? So maybe that argued for doing 100 basis points. Uh, I think the key reason the FOMC decided not to, in in my mind, I I assume, is because shifting down from 75 basis points to 50 and 25 and and stopping eventually is going to be hard enough. And hiking by 100 basis points in September would have just complicated uh, the next move. Um, And so I think, you know, their decision here was just, um, you know, focus, um, kind, of, kind of do no harm, 75 basis point hike, it probably limits the complications going forward. But uh, the real message and, and the real information, if you will, was in, uh, came through in forward guidance through the dot plot and Powell speech. Let's talk about the dot plot. The Fed also updated its summary of economic projections or SEP. Uh, what to you were the main takeaways uh, in the, the new incarnation of this? 
Sure. Well, I think that there was a lot of important information in the SEP, um, you know, changes to growth forecast, unemployment and inflation, and particularly, you know, that led to an upward shift in in the dot plot. So the the overall message that we've seen from this SEP and really going back for the last nine or 12 months is that um, economic growth is likely to come in and has come in weaker than expected. At the same time, the Fed is, has been on a path of revising up their inflation forecasts. And so, um, and also we see a greater persistence of inflation uh, embedded in the changes to the SEP. That has coincided with a, a shift higher in the dots. So we, we saw um, another 125 basis points of rate hikes embedded in the median dot for 2022. So that implies that they might be thinking about a 75 basis point hike in November, maybe 50 in December, and then possibly another 25 uh, early in 2023. Um, and I think beyond that, we got a, a little bit uh, better look um, at the Fed's strategy going forward to containing inflation. And I think what we see is that they're giving up over time on the soft landing uh, hypothesis um, or the soft landing strategy. So um, in the 2023 and 24 unemployment rate projections, we now have the unemployment rate rising to 4.4%. You know, we were at 3.5 uh, just a month or two ago. So um, an increase in the unemployment rate of nearly a percentage point has always coincided with the onset of a recession. And uh, I think what we're hearing from the FOMC is that they're acknowledging it's going to take a recession for um, the Fed to be able to bring uh, the labor market back into balance and ultimately to bring inflation back to target. Now, I know you also listen intently to the press conference uh, after the F FOMC breaks. Uh, did you hear anything noteworthy from Chair Powell uh, in, in this week's press conference? I did. Um, you know, a lot of the questions in these press conferences revolve around tactics, um, what's coming next, what uh, fed into the FOMC's decision, what are you looking at? Um, and um, toward the end of the press conference, there was questions along these lines of how much is it going to take to to bring in inflation down in terms of uh, monetary tightening. And Powell's answer, I thought, was uh, maybe the most interesting aspect of the press conference. He essentially said, um, whatever path this ultimately takes will be enough to bring inflation back to 2%. And um, some people are comparing that to, you know, President ECB President Mario Draghi's whatever it takes comment from about 10 years ago. And I think really that's what Jay Powell wants to, to convey on behalf of the FOMC is that the policy path is inherently uncertain. Um, and uh, whatever path it takes is going to be guided by the data and by the Fed's uh, unwavering commitment, as you mentioned, unconditional commitment to um, the inflation objective. Uh, which they've defined as 2%. So I think that just reinforced the message, as you said, that came through in Jackson Hole, which is that the Fed is going to stay the course until the job is done. So Brian, given the statement, the SEP, the, the Chair Powell's commentary and the press conference, in sum, then how would you characterize the Fed's posture right now? I, I would characterize it as um, a uh, central bank that is intent on preserving its inflation credibility and 
on guarding carefully against any erosion in inflation expectations. In order to do that, they need to bring inflation down as quickly as they can. Um, and so as part of that, I think the Fed is um, kind of abandoning the soft landing outlook and is acknowledging that it's going to take a rise in the unemployment rate um, and a period of weak economic growth to uh, to bring inflation back to target. And um, again, this is all due to higher inflation and greater persistence of inflation than the Fed has expected. And um, and so, you know, the only real question from here is um, how long do they need to run a balance sheet off and how high do they need to raise rates and, and hold them at a higher level before we see, um, you know, aggregate demand come back into balance with aggregate supply. Now, if you think about this in terms of a, like a kind of a step function, uh, what is the Fed actually trying to achieve through its uh, policy moves? If we think through the sort of steps and sequencing of how this is um, this game plan uh, unfolds, it's Fed has three key tools: um, interest rate hikes, balance sheet runoff, and forward guidance. And it's using those tools uh, with the intent of tightening financial conditions, which obviously includes raising interest rates and, and yields across the curve. Uh, it includes uh, inflicting some losses on you know. Uh, equity investors as well. It includes an increase in the dollar. Uh, and as financial conditions tighten, that's expected to or intended to slow economic activity. And economic activity has clearly slowed. Um, real GDP growth uh, is lower since last October. Um, and that suggests that we're getting closer to fulfilling that objective, but what we haven't seen is the next step, which is that um, the Fed wants to see an increase in labor market slack. Uh, labor market is still very tight, and um, um, as the labor market eventually uh, loosens up, the intent is for wage growth to moderate to more sustainable levels that are more consistent with uh, a reduction in cyclical inflation, which shows a clear relationship to to wage growth, and then a cyclical inflation eventually rolls over, that should bring overall inflation back to the target. So the point here is that saying uh, we're raising rates to reduce inflation, there are several steps that are actually along the way. It's a very indirect way for the Fed to actually achieve its goal. Um, so talk to us more about what is driving inflation and how it is supposed to be resolved. Sure. Fundamentally, we have a mismatch between aggregate demand and aggregate supply. Um, if you go back to the, uh, the period since the pandemic began about two and a half years ago, um, we've seen an increase in aggregate demand, uh, a lot of that stimulus related, but uh, and we've seen a decrease in aggregate supply. And so um, if you think back to your standard ISLM framework, that implies that um, the price level uh, needs to move its way up, and that is what's happening with higher inflation. So, if we look on the aggregate demand side, um, you know, there's a couple of measures that we track to gauge you know, the trend in aggregate demand, and we see on a nominal basis, uh, nominal GDP is growing 10% year over year in the latest data. Uh, that's data we have monthly data through July, and uh, and we have aggregate payrolls, which is basically a labor market concept related, but but it's related, and that uh, takes into account 
new employees hired, um, the length of the work week, as well as average hourly earnings increases. So aggregate payrolls are also increasing at a 10% year over year pace. There's been some moderation this year, uh, but um, but overall, I think it's clear to say that uh, aggregate demand is running far too hot. Um, if you go back to 2019, for instance, before the pandemic, both of those measures were running on a year-over-year basis at about three and a half percent, and I think that's more, much more in line with the economy being in, in equilibrium and um, and sustaining a trend in inflation that's closer to two percent. Uh, so, a long ways to go. Um, if you going back to um, you know what's the data over the like I said since October when real GDP peaked, I mean you've got uh, in in that period you've got what looks like a mild recession uh, if we compare it to the historical experience um, with real GDP down marginally since October of last year. But what doesn't look like a recession at all is the behavior of the labor market. So over the same period um, in the last nine, 10 months, we've seen the uh, unemployment rate drop by about a percentage point on net. Uh, And if this were a more quote unquote average recession, we would have seen over the same time period the unemployment rate having increased by a percentage point or more. So um, there is a significant divergence between output data and the labor market data. And I think the way I, I interpret that is, you know, to the extent there has been a recession uh, in the last nine months, it's been a supply side recession, not a typical demand side recession. So um, um, I think that's how I would uh, would square those two. Now, talk to us a little bit more about where the inflation is coming from. We thought it was going to be supply chain based, but now it looks like it's more broad based. Um, how is that uh, going to be uh, attacked by uh, monetary policy? Yeah, that's right. There, there are a lot of moving parts on the inflation side, but um, I think going back to this framework that the Fed is operating under, it starts with the fact that demand for labor is too strong relative to the supply. So Powell mentioned again, uh, an indicator that we know they've been watching for some time, which is the ratio of job openings per unemployed worker. Um, We get the job openings in the JOLTS data each month, and that shows a ratio of two to one in terms of job openings per unemployed uh, worker. So that's quite a bit out of balance compared to the historical experience. Um, You also see that, again, aggregate payroll growth, as I mentioned, running 10% year over year, that's well above the pre-pandemic trend, as I noted. Uh, And usually in the first several years after a recession, um, you see a period where aggregate payroll growth runs well below the pre-recessionary trend. Um, And so another sign that demand for labor is quite strong. Um, If you look at the connection there to inflation, the the key transmission is through the wage channel. So with the unemployment rate low and and, job openings very high, we've seen really robust um, wage growth. And our preferred wage measure is the employment cost index. Uh, It's unfortunately only available quarterly, but it shows uh, really robust wage gains and wage gains have accelerated significantly in the period where the unemployment rate has dropped down to new, again, new cycle lows. Um, there is a you know, pretty strong connection between this um, wage measure from Employment Cost Index or ECI and uh, the strongest transmission is to the cyclical components of core inflation. So an example of a cyclical you know, aspect of inflation would be shelter. Um, when the economy is strong and the labor market is tight, we tend to see an acceleration in in, uh, in housing inflation. 
and that is is the case today. So um, if you look beyond um, you know kind of typical core measures, um, the Fed is watching closely things like median CPI and trimmed mean CPI. Uh, and on a year-over-year -year basis, both of those measures have touched new cycle highs, in fact, new highs in the data that goes back almost 40 years. Um, we've not seen anything this strong. So um, that's data through August. And I think the strength in these sort of non-traditional core measures, median CPI and trimming, are part of the reason why you've heard some officials, for example, President uh, Loretta Mester indicated a couple of weeks ago that she's not convinced that inflation has peaked on a year-over-year -year basis. Um, so um, the broadening out of inflation is, is important to watch. Um, another aspect coming back to shelter is, is the, um, the deficit in housing. I want to set aside for a moment the fact that the housing market has slowed, housing activity has slowed materially in the last six months. But kind of stepping back and thinking about the structural issues with the housing market, we've, we've been underbuilding homes for, you know, uh, gosh, 15 years coming out of the overhang from the, uh, the housing bubble and the overbuilding that occurred in that cycle. So um, if you look at listings data, um, the number of single family homes listed for sale has started to tick down as, it, as is the seasonal pattern uh, heading into the fall, but uh, we're well below the number of homes. Um, according to Zillow, you know, if you compare it to this same time of year in 2018, the number of listings available for sale is, is half of what it was then. Um, another measure is the vac household vacancy rate, which is again, uh, in the last four quarters uh, is at an all-time low going back uh, 60 years. So we've got a shortage of, of housing units. Um, and so the Fed has to hit the brakes pretty hard by trying to push up mortgage rates to throttle back demand for housing so that we can try to cool off this in inflation pressure. And, and it, we think it will cool off. It's just that um, you know housing inflation is is uh, is lagged and is going to take some time to work its way through uh, the, the the inflation data um, on the energy side too. We've we've got some um, important relief from falling oil and uh, and gasoline prices in in the last three months. It's been very helpful, um, but we're, we're hearing that the Fed is is um, you know a little bit. Um, uh, nervous about the possibility of another spike in oil prices. And, you know, with everything happening in Europe, the shortage of Russian gas and, and the plans to shut off Russian crude oil here in December, you know, there is a strong incentive for U.S. Uh, energy to be exported to Europe and other places around the world. And sure enough, we've seen a significant drop in U.S. crude oil inventories, particularly when you focus on the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the SPR, uh, which has been selling roughly a million barrels a day um, um, for much of this year. Putting it all together, um, we've got a fair degree of persistence of core services inflation, of which housing is an important component. Um, but other indicators are showing um, some easing inflation pressures. Supply chain uh, measures are improving significantly. Uh, you know, transportation and shipping logistics costs uh, have been coming down. Um, I mentioned the, the fall in oil and, and gas prices recently. That's going to be helpful. And also the dollar is appreciating uh, significantly. And as you mentioned at the outset, other central banks are sort of scrambling to keep pace with the Fed. But as the dollar appreciates, that's going to put some downward pressure on tradable goods prices uh, and help cool off inflation, we think, over time. So uh, 
what do you think the the future path of inflation will be? What's the what's the view today from from where you sit? Right. Well, I think it's kind of a mixed picture where you've got um, uh, fairly sticky core services inflation, um, and I'm talking about, as I mentioned, shelter inflation, uh, medical care inflation, uh, other labor intensive service industries. Uh, are still grappling, as I mentioned, with high wages and particularly high unit labor costs because productivity has been pretty poor, has been negative in the in the reported data for the last couple of quarters. So um, th- that's going to be stickier and keep inflation above the Fed's target uh, over the next several years. And in fact, if you look at the SEP, um, the median projection for core PC inflation uh, doesn't return to 2%. I mean, it gets to 2.1% in 2025. Uh, but it's a slow, you know, return to two percent. Overall, inflation though is going to be coming down. We think pretty notably as we move through 2023, and it's combination of base effects, uh, lower energy prices, uh, and um, at least based on what we've seen so far, and also as I noted, uh, a decline in in goods prices related to the easing of supply chains and um, uh, and the strength of the dollar. So as time goes by, we, we do think the inflation will be coming back toward the target. But the hard part is going to be, you know, getting from, let's say, you know, core PCE of inflation of, of 3% or 3.5% to get that back down to 2%. And that last leg of the process, I think, is going to be where really the rubber meets the road for the Fed. How is the market viewing monetary policy right now? What can we learn from uh, the futures market and the shape of the yield curve? Yeah. So if we look at what's priced in to the forward uh, curve, you can see um, a terminal rate expectation of uh, a range, let's say, of three, four and a half to 475. And that's broadly consistent with what we saw in the dot plot uh, with the SCP update this week. Um, and again, that we're, we've, we're priced for basically something, you know, in line with the SCP on a, on a meeting by meeting basis. We've got close to 75 basis points priced in for November, close to 50 priced for December, and close to 25 for February, which is the next meeting. So um, nothing, I think, too um, unusual there. That seems uh, fair from where we sit. Um, In terms of the shape of the yield curve, of course, we've observed this pretty relentless flattening, uh, which has been going on for more than a year now, but it really accelerated since the June FOMC meeting a few months ago. And, um, and um, you know, we, we don't see any reason why that, that flattening shouldn't continue um, for the near future. And th- at the end of the day, you know, there's, there's different ways to interpret the flattening of the yield curve. One is that it's saying, hey, the, the market is uh, pricing in a recession. Um, and, and we do think a recession will begin next year. But another way to think about it is, is just in terms of inflation. And again, this, this short-term imbalance between supply and demand. I mean, in the long run, the factors that have kept interest rates low and relatively stable for the last 20 years or so, uh, 20 plus years, that's those factors are largely intact. Uh, but we do have an important cyclical problem that needs to be worked through. So to get, you know, to ensure uh, inflation returns to target and to maintain central bank credibility, it's obviously important um, and it's necessary for rates in the short term in the near future to be higher than they would be in the long in a long run equilibrium scenario. So that implies a pretty deeply inverted yield curve. And, and, and that's what the market I think is, uh, is grasping onto. 
Now, uh, you mentioned recession. Uh, Let's talk a little bit uh, more detail about that. What is your board, your recession dashboard, and and your models telling you about the possible timing of a recession? Right. It's... um you know, as you mentioned, we've got a recession dashboard that that we monitor and, and update as new data comes in. And that allows us to sort of track the progress of the business cycle and uh, in its later stages. And what we see is that, yes, yeah, sure enough, labor market uh, being tight is a classic late cycle signal uh, and, uh, and monetary policy moving uh, tighter, another signal. And then that tends to cause the yield curve to flatten. So all those things are lining up. Um, but you know it's hard to say that monetary policy, at least based on real interest rates, uh, using you know core PCE for example, is not yet at the at, at a place that would necessarily um, be consistent with past recessions. But um, but the activity data have been telling a different story. The LEI, uh, which came in again quite weak um, in this week's data. Uh, the leading economic indicators have been um, on a path that's consistent with a, a recession in the near term. Uh, and, um, you know, again, labor market is decelerating. We'll be watching that closely. And real consumption, particularly on the good side, has been weak in a way that points to a you know near term recession. So um, it's a bit of a mixed picture. But when we put it all together, it, it, it's reasonable to assume that in, you know, call it nine months, give or take a few months, uh, it's it's likely that we are going to enter what the NBER, the official arbiters of U.S. Uh, business cycles, um, would would define as a as a classic uh, recession. So we we have a, an economy that's demonstrably weakening, with an ex- paradoxically a very strong job market and still strong inflationary impulses. So what is your view of the possible course of monetary policy from here in terms of rate hikes and balance sheet runoff? Right. So um, I think rate hikes um, would um, would entail probably another 75 basis point hike in November and um, and most likely uh, moving to a slower pace from there. So, you know, we would expect a, a 50 in December and, uh, you know, another 25 probably in February. So by then, we think there's going to be clearer evidence that uh, inflation is uh, beginning to come back down, and that importantly, the labor market is starting to crack. Um, that's not been the case yet, but as we look down the road six months or so, um, that seems um, increasingly likely. So that probably brings the Fed to a terminal rate in the vicinity of four and a half. Uh, on the balance sheet, you you know we've stepped up. The Fed has stepped up the caps to a maximum of sixty billion a month for Treasuries and up to thirty five billion for MBS. You know, mortgage prepayments are not, you know, fast enough to fulfill that um, to fill that thirty-five billion cap for mortgages. Uh, it's quite a bit less than that, but nevertheless, you know, we expect the Fed will just sort of keep this uh, path for the balance sheet intact uh, as we get, you know, into twenty twenty-three. Later in toward the end of twenty twenty-three, if if the business cycle rolls over as we expect, uh, the Fed probably decides at that point that it's time to shut off balance sheet runoff. And so um, we we anticipate that would give us let's call it roughly a trillion dollars of balance sheet runoff, uh, you know, over the next uh, nine twelve months. Ultimately, that that process will probably fall short of the more like three trillion dollars in balance sheet runoff that I think some of the scenarios uh, the Fed is looking at would call for. Do you think the election will play any role uh, in the November decision, which will happen? I think right before the election. 
I would not expect the FOMC to do anything differently because an election is happening than they otherwise would. Um, now, the election outcome itself could have a bearing on monetary policy in the sense that, you know, depending on the outcome and uh, um, whether the Democrats continue to hold uh, the House, the Senate, and obviously the White House, they will. But um, that may open the door to additional measures um, uh, in 2023 and 24 that would, would you know, possibly uh, influence the path of monetary policy. But um, but the the fact that there's an election happening that week, it's in and of itself, I wouldn't expect to sway them in any direction. We've been talking about the future course of policy, and, and Chair Powell got a lot of questions at the press conference, as you said, about the Fed's reaction function. Um, you know, what, it, what would it take for the Fed to either pause or change the size of rate hikes, get make them larger or make them smaller? Um, what key indicators do you think might play into the Fed's decision-making process going forward? So, yeah, I, let me start, I guess, with the case that might cause them to step up the pace of hikes. I, I think that's less likely uh, from, you know, being that we're already at 75, which is pretty extraordinary. I, you know, something that would cause them to hike 100 would be evidence that um, there's really two things. One, if markets were not digesting properly the Fed's reaction function and the policy tightening. So if we saw a period of significant financial conditions easing, for instance, uh, the Fed could, you know, decide to step up the pace to push back against that. Um, they haven't needed to do that because their job owning uh, in the intermeeting period has been sufficient to, you know, help bring financial conditions back in uh, into um, uh, submission, if you will. Uh, the other thing that they would that would really worry them would be evidence of a spike in inflation expectations. So, if there were a, if something that looked like a clear erosion in the Fed's credibility, um, that could be justification for stepping up the pace. I, again, I don't think either of those are very likely at this juncture. So, uh, things that could cause them to step down the pace and, and the indicators they'll be watching closely would be um, signs that the labor market is cooling uh, more significantly. And particularly, the demand for labor is tapering off. So we have we have seen some slowdown in the pace of job creation, but it's still quite strong from a historical perspective, given that the unemployment rate is below four percent. Um, so they'll be watching the labor market data closely, and wages will be an important part of that. Um, beyond that, there's the obvious inflation data, um, and uh, as I mentioned, they are expecting to see cooling in goods inflation. Uh, and they are hoping to see a moderation in services inflation. So if we saw evidence that those things were happening, particularly on the services side, which I think is, again, more durable and uh, um, kind of stickier, then that could give them comfort that things are moving you know, toward their objective. And uh, that could, could justify a step down in the pace of rate hikes uh, to something like 50 and then 25. Uh, in terms of market developments, you know, um, they're watching all the typical things, um, both from a price action standpoint and a market functioning standpoint. So I think what we've seen so far is obviously a pretty broad-based sell-off across um, many asset classes. And that's all part of the script. Um, things are you know, following the, the game plan where financial conditions are tightening. Um, given, that, given that the economic uh, you know, trends tend to lag financial conditions a bit, um, you know, as the economy eventually rolls over, the Fed, I think, is going to push. They're going to they're want to push less hard and maybe 
ease off this hiking pace eventually and, and sort of plateau uh, at that terminal rate while they watch the data come in. Thank you for, for all of that. Now, uh, there are a couple of other items I wanted to discuss with you uh, while we've got you, and let's do it in a lightning round fashion, if you will, because uh, you've, you've been very generous with your time. Uh, but let's, let's start with the, the Bank of Japan and the yen. What's going on there? Right. Well, the Bank of Japan, uh, in 2016, they put in place a policy framework, the yield curve control framework, where, um, you know, really they were, it was designed for exactly this kind of moment. Um, Japan has been unable for decades to generate uh, inflation. Uh, and, uh, and so really what the yield curve control framework is intended to do is uh, to hold the line on yields. And when you get a global shock of higher interest rates, the transmission mechanism is a weaker yen. So that's clearly been um, underway. The yen has been uh, a real um, underperformer uh, versus other major currencies. And uh, this is, has made some folks in Japan uh, in the administration and the, and the Minister of Finance a little uncomfortable. So we saw an intervention uh, by the Japanese this week, uh, first time in quite a while. And, uh, you know, a knee-jerk strengthening of the yen, but now we've resumed uh, you know, uh, back to yen weakness in the last, uh, you know, session and a half. So I, I don't expect that they're going to be too successful with any kind of uh, intervention plan. At best, I think what they can do to, is try to introduce a little bit more two-way risk to the market. Well, so we'll keep an eye on the Bank of Japan in the end. Uh, how about the, uh, the war in Ukraine and its impact on uh, the global economy and markets? Yeah, this is this has obviously been a huge story and a, and a tragic uh, story in in world history to watch. So um, it's I would say that the impact on the market has been most significant through the uh, disruptions to global energy, particularly Russian customers in Europe, and um, and it's also increased the uncertainty around the path of global energy supply. And, and associated inflation pressure. So um, it's compounding the weakness of, of the euro, uh, which again is requiring the ECB and other European central banks to raise interest rates more aggressively than I'm sure they would otherwise like to do. Um, so as I think about the impact of the war on the global economy and the global markets, it's really more about a, a negative supply side shock that uh, it's feeding through into higher inflation around the world and necessitating uh, on the margin tighter monetary policy. Uh, let's talk about the strength of the U.S. dollar and the impact it's having on the world. As the Fed has stepped up its campaign uh, against inflation, um, as you noted, that's put upward pressure on the dollar really against uh, nearly all currencies. And so um, th the effect that has uh, from the U.S. standpoint is to, on the margin, dampen inflation pressures. We discussed that. Also, it has an impact on uh, corporate profitability where we have a lot of multinational companies that are going to be translating foreign earnings back at a, at a stronger dollar, a week and weaker foreign sales exchange rate. Um, from a global standpoint, what it does is it essentially uh, exports U.S. inflation or some portion of it to the rest of the world. And so what that means is that other central banks um, need to arguably run a tighter policy stance than they otherwise would based on domestic considerations in order to limit the pass through of exchange rate weakness into domestic inflation measures. Um, and, uh, and so it really kind of global. The, the fact that essentially all the world's major economies um, are on a, a you know, flexible exchange rate regimes means that we get this transmission mechanism of, of the global inflation and interest rate shock 
from the U.S. to the rest of the world. And we're seeing uh, rate hikes by other central banks around the world that are, you know, of the same size and speed. In some cases, you know, even faster and larger than the Fed uh, as they try and deal with this situation. That's right. Um, we've seen, you know, several 75, even 100, 100 basis point hikes by developed economy central banks. That kind of uh, that kind of uh, uh, cadence has been more typical in some emerging market countries over the years. And as you know, Jay, I started my you know career as an emerging market economist, uh, and it's amazing how things have come full circle uh, over the last you know uh, several decades, where um, because of this. Uh, this critical need to ensure inflation comes back to target and uh, central banks maintain credibility. We're seeing some pretty big moves, but as tying back to the dollar, again, this is uh, the dollar strength and, and, and the Fed's aggressive posture are um, really requiring um, this kind of a global um, central bank hiking campaign. Now, last lightning round question is something that we don't talk about enough, I think, which is the economic impact of climate change. What are your thoughts there? Sure. Uh, another really key uh, macro issue, a lot of different implications, a couple of that come to mind. One is that as we've seen this year and in recent years, um, we've, we've had some really impactful weather in terms of major heat waves in China, in Europe and parts of the US, et cetera, um, droughts, um, uh, famines in important parts of the world, uh, major crop damage, et cetera. So those things have been, in addition to impacting a lot of lives, have also generally been inflationary because it's been, uh, you know, negative supply shocks, whether it be in agriculture or, you know, maybe it's a demand shock for higher electricity consumption uh, for air conditioning and things. So um, it's been on balance, I think, a bit inflationary. But another important aspect of it is has to do with kind of our longer term approach to fossil fuels and. Um, you know, uh, of course, there's a very important effort underway to transition to cleaner energy sources. But what that's meant is that in, in the last several years, there's been a, a meaningful underinvestment in fossil fuel production. Now, some people may not, um, you know, necessarily remember this, but just to maintain our global production of crude oil, for instance, we need significant investment in capex. Uh, to just maintain stable production because of the, the decline rates in the existing wells. So um, it, it really does take uh, a lot of investment in oil and gas and in other uh, related industries to, to feed the energy needs of this global economy. So I would say, you know, one of the, one of the economic and market impacts of the push, you know, to address climate change has been to probably shortchange fossil fuel production in a way that, you know, ironically has contributed to the spike and, and, uh, uh, and supply limitations of oil and gas, which, of course, you know, um, uh, uh, President Putin has exploited uh, in the war on Ukraine. But um, it's, I think, an important aspect of uh, of climate change that we're living with. Now, Brian, uh, my last question for you uh, is, you know, from the market perspective, what should investors be thinking right now, given everything that we've been discussing? I think um, investors should. Um, Bear in mind that um, some of the best opportunities in markets occur when we've undergone significant losses, uh, when uncertainty is very high and, and volatility. And we're in one of those markets right now. Um, year to date, there's been significant losses again for stocks and, and for bonds. 
but thinking about the bond market specifically, we're at a juncture now where yields on high quality uh, credit are, I think, very compelling. And uh, if you look at the, the history of the last several decades, we haven't had very many opportunities to, to buy attractive assets at these kind of yields. So uh, from a long-term perspective, I, I, you know, I would encourage people to, to bear that in mind and not lose sight of the opportunity. Um, and also, I would tie that into our earlier discussion about Jay Powell and his comments at the press conference, where he said, "Whatever path we take, it's going to be enough to bring inflation down." Now, that's important because the, you know, if you believe, like we do, that the Fed is eventually going to be successful in bringing inflation down, that means we're also going to be able to go back to a world where they're not stomping on the brakes as hard and they're bringing in interest rates eventually back down uh, to more moderate levels. So um, that. Um, and again, there's going to likely require a recession uh, to bring that about. But those are pretty favorable um, conditions for you know long-term fixed income in particular, uh, because you know when the Fed gets the recession uh, they're aiming for, and when inflation does come down, um, that's going to clearly benefit uh, high-quality, longer-term fixed income. Well, thank you for all that, Brian. Um, now, before I let you go, is there any final message you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, thanks, Jay. I just want to thank everybody for listening today, and we appreciate your partnership. And uh, and I, let me just say, this has been a very tough market for all of us, and uh, and continues to be. But you know, let's all try to step back and think about also the opportunity that we're presented with, and uh, and we think there's compelling value uh, in fixed income at this point. Well, thank you again, Brian, for your time. Please come back and visit with us soon. Thanks, Jay. You too. And thanks to all of you who have joined us for our new podcast. If you like what you were hearing, again, please rate us five stars. If you have any questions for Brian uh, or any of our other podcast guests, please send them to macromarkets at guggenheiminvestments.com. And we will do our best to answer them either on air, on a future episode or offline. I'm Jay Diamond, and we look forward to gathering again for the next episode of Macro Markets with Guggenheim Investments. In the meantime, for more of our thought leadership, visit guggenheiminvestments.com slash perspectives. So long. Important notices and disclosures. One basis point is equal to 0.01%. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. Stock markets can be volatile. Investments in securities of small and medium capitalization companies may involve greater risk of loss and more abrupt fluctuations in market price than investments in larger companies. The market value of fixed income securities will change in response to interest rate changes and market conditions, among other things. Investments in fixed income instruments are subject to the possibility that interest rates could rise, causing their value to decline. High-yield securities present more liquidity and credit risk than investment-grade bonds and may be subject to greater volatility. Investors in asset-backed securities, or ABS, including mortgage-backed securities, or MBS, and collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, generally receive payments that are part interest and part return of principal. These payments may vary based on the rate loans are repaid. Some asset-backed securities may have structures that make their reaction to interest rates and other factors difficult to predict, making their prices volatile, and are subject to liquidity and valuation risk. CLOs bear similar risk to investing in loans directly, such as credit, interest rate, counterparty, prepayment, liquidity and valuation risks. Loans are often below investment grade, may be unrated, 
and typically offer a fixed or floating interest rate. This podcast is distributed or presented for informational or educational purposes only and should not be considered a recommendation of any particular security, strategy or investment product or as investing advice of any kind. This material is not provided in a fiduciary capacity, may not be relied upon for or in connection with the making of investment decisions and does not constitute a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. The content contained herein is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal or tax advice and or a legal opinion. Always consult a financial, tax and or legal professional regarding your specific situation. The opinions contained herein are subject to change without notice. Forward-looking statements, estimates and certain information contained herein are based upon proprietary and non-proprietary research and other sources. Information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but are not assured as to accuracy. No part of this material may be reproduced or referred to in any form without express written permission of Guggenheim Partners LLC. There is neither representation nor warranty as to the current accuracy of nor liability for decisions based on such information. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Guggenheim Investments represents the investment management businesses of Guggenheim Partners, LLC. Securities are distributed by Guggenheim Funds Distributors, LLC.